Welcome to Bioinnovator Spotlight at Life Science Org, where we listen to the life science leaders of tomorrow tell their story and discuss their challenges as founders and entrepreneurs. I'm your host, scientist turned communicator, Dr. David Kirk. Let's meet today's founder. I'm joined this week by Elena Reda, CEO and co founder of Dama Health, based in London, UK. Elena, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, David. Please tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in life science. Yeah, so I started, I guess, my academic um, career background in the medical sciences space. I was always interested in either doing medicine or, you know, working around medicine. Um, I think I've always been someone who is more of a go doer, a bit impatient. So medicine seemed like a very long <laughs> kind of route to an end that I wasn't hundred percent sure about. So that's kind of why I started off with um, medical sciences and genetics. Um, and that was really kind of the beginning of my journey, I guess, exploring the biotech, the innovation space, the research space, mm. and where I started to get really, yeah, really interested in how drugs have been developed, you know, how research, you know, is done and yeah. started noticing these huge gaps in the way that like females were recruited for, you know, R and D research, um, trials, um, and really, I think started looking more into the space, right? Like how do we develop drugs? Do we test it on different, you know, bodies and populations? And if not, why, um, and just starting to, to kind of get more and more interested and intrigued in this space. Um, and I think that's a huge part of where my journey ended up with Dama Health, um, which I'll go into later. But mm. in between that, I guess, um, kind of, I think this is a, an issue that a lot of entrepreneurs, not an issue, but um, a trend that you hear a lot about, which is um, I worked in the lab. I wasn't 100% happy <laughs> in the lab um, and so started to explore other opportunities outside the lab. And I think um, that was the right call for me. I, again, big picture thinker. I wanted to see not only, you know, what amazing science was happening, but how you then got that science to the patient, how you like innovated, how you were then able to speed up that innovation and, and go beyond like a publication. And so started to apply and look for jobs outside of the lab space, but actually randomly ended up in social care. Um, I think right. I, I ended up doing like a grad scheme in, um, operations management and social care. And, um, I think this really helped me just learn more about myself in the sense that, um, I liked working in, you know, low resource environments, um, where, yeah, I guess you had to solve issues with, um, in very like low resource, like, um, high dependency kind of, kind of constraining environments and right. the, and then also working with very vulnerable people and, and patients. So I worked with a lot of Alzheimer patients, dementia patients, and um, that whole experience, again, made me realize how I was just solving, you know, trying to find, you know, very simple ways of solving kind of complex issues um, in a very similar environment to a startup, right? You have very low resources, yeah. money, people, time, um, yet you can find very creative ways to be able to still solve a problem. Um, and that led me to kind of choose my next move, which was go back to business school, go to business school um, and do innovation, entrepreneurship and management. Um, I think I was just intrigued, like how I could mix the two, like how could I mix the medical sciences, the genetics, 
with, you know, my more operational and now like management um, experience, yeah. but stay in the biotech sphere because that was ultimately what I was passionate about. Um, and then after studying in business school, got a job at Merck, Merck's Innovation Center. And that was really what like did it for me in terms of I started working with very early technology and very early yeah. stage startups. I started really the impact, realizing the impact and working with like multidisciplinary teams to get you know, idea, IP to market. Um, and eventually, you know, the idea of Dama and the project became more than just a project. And I took my chances and, and basically quit my job to pursue, you know, my, um, my passion project, which is now, you know, my business. As yeah. well. Tell me more about that. Um, like founding the company, uh, was it a spin out of, uh, Merck or was it, uh, how did it come about exactly? Yeah, so it was um it wasn't a spin out. We've we've maintained it completely independent and it was made it stemmed from an idea that I had a couple years ago, but then realized that along my journey and actually of talking about this idea, there were several people that were working on very similar things, at least from like the unmet need problem um mm-hmm. kind of perspective. And so I pitched this idea when I was in business school to um to do as a project. We then got, you know building the business plan and doing some market research around it and we won like the final innovation prize for it um it then got put on hold but i started to realize that it was something that i was just so passionate about i started to do even more research i tried to see were there any scientists experts in the field that were publishing in the space that we could use you know like existing data um to be able to to add on to it Mm -hmm. and it was through just talking about it and discussing the topic of like Dharma health and contraception fit with my colleagues at Merck, with, you know, the the people that were working on women's health initiatives. But I started to get more and more validation, more and more understanding of, you know, the realistic situation of actually building a business around the idea. Mm. Um, and because I talked about it, I actually ended up having an amazing opportunity within Merck to work in the women's health initiative. So I pitched to the chief scientific officer at that time of the Innovation Center to get some budget allocation for like women's health projects. And through that, I think I started to just get more and more involved in in, in that sphere and eventually realized, you know, I think I know more or less what I need and what I, what it takes to, um, to create this business. But um, Dama Health was purely set up. Yeah. As a, as a private entity from okay. with my co-founder and I, and we have been supported by Imperial college London, which is the university of both my co-founder and I, but They've never, you know, they don't own any IP and they've never had a stake and it's not a spin out. It's, we both graduated and basically, you know, created Dama. So mm. despite their support, um, yeah, we've maintained it completely as an, uh, an independent entity. No, oh, that sounds wonderful. And I think uh, now is a good time to explain to the listeners exactly what Dama Health is, what it does, and what is the great unmet need that it's trying to address. Yeah, absolutely. So Dama Health is, as you mentioned, we're a UK based women's health um, technology company and we are solving the um, the trial and error problem of women finding and being prescribed contraception. Um, so we do this through AI um, and digital biomarkers, but we're also developing a pharmacogenomics test to be able to really start personalizing and bringing precision medicine into the field of women's health, especially women's health um, prescribing. Um, and so, yeah, the big problem right now is that I mean, we have over nearly 900 million women on reversible forms of contraception around the world, and it's still very much a trial and error science 
to prescribe and to, you know, match individual to methods. Um, and one in three women stop taking contraception as a result of this. Um, you know, they try between three to four different methods before finding a tolerable one. And this is mainly because of the side effect profiles. Like some could be really bad, um, but not only bad, it's just we're not we're not really understanding, you know, which individual can tolerate which side effect, which is a huge part of the the initial problem in itself, because contraception is used for many women to treat like certain symptoms like heavy bleeding, acne. Um, they may have underlying conditions like PCOS and endometriosis, which need to be, you know, the symptoms need to be treated. And so hormonal um, contraception is usually used for this. Um, and so what we do is we really try to understand the patient's needs their goals and also their risks, their independent like risks. Do they have blood clot risk? Do they metabolize these hormones faster or slower? And then we we basically help, you know, match. Um, and this is a huge problem from the physician side as well, because just to give you an idea, in the UK alone, we have 79 different brands and formulations to choose from and 13 different methods. So there's a bit of a labyrinth, especially when you have, you know, five, seven minutes on average um, GP time to be able to make these um, consultations work and when the woman needs to be informed on so many different, you know, factors. Um, so we support as well in the shared decision-making between patient and physician to make sure that um, it's happening in the most efficient way, but then also we're not seeing the woman keep coming back, like coming back to the system um, because they're unhappy with the methods and ultimately could have a very negative relationship with contraception for the rest of her life if she does experience like a traumatic event or quite a negative, um, you know, side effect or symptom from it. Yes. I mean, we've been seeing an awful lot in the news in recent years, how, uh, uh, women's complaints when they go to their GP, especially with, uh, conditions like polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, and uh, uh, even just general period cramps, pain associated with that are often not taken as seriously as they should be. Is this something that uh, is also being dealt with through your company? Is it something you're looking at? Absolutely. I mean, there's a, a huge educational gap um, as well from the patient side, but also from the physician side in terms of really understanding and having real world data to reflect, you know, what is actually happening? What are the side effects associated with, you know, which conditions? Mm-hmm. Um, these women's health conditions have not been, you know, investigated for a long time. It was only, you know, 30 years ago that women even entered clinical trials, endometriosis and PCOS has only just started to get, you know, funding and attention in the industry. And so we're lagging in terms of our understanding of the, the just the disease, we're lagging in the understanding of being able to predict um, early diagnosis. There is no, you know, like early diagnosis for some of these conditions. Um, and so a huge part of what we're trying to do as well is to make sure that we are like filtering, we're identifying, we're picking up on any signals um that can then you know better trigger and triage to be able to say hey we know this patient may be at risk or they're you know they're showing signs early signs of these conditions so these are things to consider um also just being able to highlight contraindications and a lot of that we've realized is just by informing the woman and asking the right questions early on Mm. because the amount of times we see women who have migraines migraine with migraines with aura being prescribed estrogen um, and progesterone um, contraceptives um, is quite common. And actually a migraine is one of the biggest contraindications for prescribing that form of medication. And it's simply because the woman wasn't 
you know, informed or knew about this contraindication and just never mentioned it in the way that she needed to, to the doctor. And the doctor didn't probe, right? So again, it goes back to, you have five, 10 minutes max with your physician. And we want to make sure that the right information, the important information is being communicated. So we try and take a lot of that burden in the screening process before the consultation through our technology and our tools, but also we highlight what's important um, to consider from, from both ends. Um, and yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's mainly, there's a big data gap and I think we're collecting, you know, real world evidence, real world data. Um, huge part of our mission is to be able to be one of the first, or, you know, one of the few, um, female biobanks, female, um, genetic biobanks, but also, um, data banks where we start collecting real world evidence of real world symptoms yeah. of, you know, diverse populations and, and, and how these diverse populations are reacting to these drugs, because unfortunately it just doesn't exist. We can't outsource it from anywhere, or at least from very small, um, you know, sample sizes. Yes. That's, a, that's amazing. I mean, thinking about it is it's such a personal thing as well. It's not like you can compare, you can compare talking to uh, maybe people within your social circle, but it's still sometimes a taboo subject in certain cultures. Uh, you can't compare notes usually you don't know what's normal. I think it's very important to have that, that have that data. Absolutely. Yeah. And usually, I mean, women usually talk to their friends or their immediate family, their mothers their sisters, but exactly. It's, it's not just not knowing whether what you're experiencing is normal or not Mm -hmm. normal is one of the biggest things um, about, you know, talking up, talking about it or mentioning certain symptoms and side effects and, people's tolerability to side effects are very different, you know, and this is part of also the tool. If no exogenous hormone is going to make you feel wonderful, unless, you know, you've got a huge disbalance. And so we, we try to make it very clear that, you know, if your aim is to help with your heavy bleeding and, you know, and this is a huge quality of life restriction for you because you can't go to work, you know, you have to take time off. You, um, you really feel like this is restricting your life are you willing to compromise with maybe the occasional X side effect? And if so, then, you know, understand that this is what this method gives you. Um, But you need to kind of give that information to people. You need to empower them to make that decision because huge part of why we have low adherence to a lot of these medications is this expectation of like, Oh, I'm going to feel okay. Or um, that's not what I was expecting and people stopping to take them. And in some cases actually becoming pregnant and, that could be quite detrimental depending on where you live. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, there's many factors and many kind of uh, benefits of educating, but, but also to be able to to explain what's normal and what's not, um, mm-hmm. and really like pushing that information, that data out. And thinking of, as well about not just the challenge of the company, but your challenge specifically as the CEO, uh, what is the biggest challenge facing you today? Yeah, great question. I mean, <laughs> always challenges when you're we're building a an early stage business. But I think with the current landscape, both financial, but also evidence driven and the amount of startups now really pushing into the space, um, I think it's being able to navigate and manage resources as efficiently as possible. It is harder, you know, to to raise capital without certain traction points, whether that is commercial traction mm-hmm. or very strong clinical evidence um, or, you know, associations in your research. And I think in a field that we operate in, in women's health, where, you know, 4% of total R&D is spent on women's health, we have 
very little amount of data, like historic data that we can use to be able to like hypotheses, like test that we can work uh, and build on top of. So we are starting from a ground point where there's less information than other conditions and other um, basically other disease areas. And so we have to work with less for longer. And I think that's one of the biggest the biggest challenges, you know, being able to make sure that you are really identify, identifying your value inflection points as a business. And for us right now, um, and being able to really like with, with a smaller team with maybe less funding, um, be able to kind of meet those, um, meet those opportunities. And I think this is with most startups, but I think right now the, the market is tight, um, and investors are asking, um, you know, for evidence that they used to ask later stage companies for um, a lot earlier. And we were kind of navigating in that space at the moment. And on top of that, in the women's healthcare space, which which always adds to um, a little bit more of that challenge. Uh, finally, the last question I'd like to ask you then is, uh, as a book or a documentary made an impact on you, uh, either recently, maybe it was earlier in your career, but that you could share with our founders? Yes. Yeah, so... Um, I read this book a couple of years ago and I was thinking about how to answer this question, but it's not related to the biotech or healthcare space, but it was um, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, so um, founder of Nike. Um, and I think when reading this book, I just, I wasn't an entrepreneur or founder then, but I really did admire his way of kind of um, his resilience through his journey. I think it's um, in that book, you really saw kind of the challenges, the no's, the letdowns, and how close he was to closing the business, the business not going well. Um, and I think it really, as a founder, made me realize that, you know, it's so important that you keep believing in yourself and your journey, because if you don't, you know, it's going to be harder for everyone around you too. Um, and I think this was now being a founder, that whole message of like resilience and not giving up, um, really, really came through in that book for me. And I'd be curious to read the book again, now that I am, you know, a founder, um, and see, you know, what I maybe unconsciously picked up from that book. That I'm carrying with me now, um, but also love the way that he he mentioned um, that you need to find the right people to support you and just get not tell them what to do, but give them the tools so that they can show you know their potential to you. And I think that's a huge um, huge way of how I work with my team, and I think like um, I guess my management style as well. Like you let your team kind of prove to you their potential um, as long as you kind of give them the tools and the support. Um, and that all kind of came through to me in that book. So yeah, we definitely recommend founders to read it if you haven't. It's always great to kind of cross, cross learn from different industries and see what you can apply to the biotech space um, as well from yeah an industry like fashion and like footwear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think this is where some of the better lessons are going to be learned. I think for biotech, you're going to come from outside of the space and applying other exactly. lessons to the sector. Now, thank you so much for that recommendation. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, David. Lovely yeah, to speak to you today. Are you a life science CEO in Europe? Go to lifescienceorg.com, where you can connect, share, and engage with a community of your peers. We have a platform just for early stage founders too. You can join there at nextgen.lifescienceorg.com.